Last Sunday, we looked at points one and two of what we have really is a three-point sermon here. We looked at the Trinitarian nature of spiritual gifts, and we looked at the purpose of spiritual gifts. And of course, this morning, we will focus on point three, as well as the manifestations of the Spirit or the spiritual gifts that Paul begins to identify in this text and in the next text. There are, I see in the total text, nine, nine spiritual gifts that he identifies here. And I believe this makes this particular section, there's only a handful of sections on spiritual gifts in the New Testament. This is the longest of the two or three that there are. I think we'll probably talk about that more in a bit, but we see nine here and today we'll look at four and then Lord willing this coming Sunday, we'll look at the other five. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be looking at seven verses seven to nine. And I want to pray before we get to work. Father, we ask for your gracious, graciousness now in, in that you will help us to hear and learn and to apply the truth that we would live it out for your glory and honor and for the benefit of those in this body. And that's really the purpose of the spiritual gifts is to, is to benefit each other. And so just help us to understand what they are, help us to apply what they are, to even seek out to see if we have this one or that one. And then, of course, to make right use of them for your glory and our good. So just help us this morning as we begin to look at Paul's correction. And I think that Paul's correction here has some wonderful contextual parallels to today because like Back then, nearly 2,000 years ago, a great many of these spiritual gifts are totally being abused today, or at least we have imitations. And so just help us to see the parallels and to make the connections and to make the adjustments so that we can align ourselves with the word and bring glory to the one who manifests these very gifts in us. And that's the spirit and really the whole trinity we learned last week. So Lord, help us now as we focus on your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we can pick up where we left off last Sunday. Remember, we covered points one and two. Now we're looking at our third point. Number three, Paul now talks about the diversity of spiritual gifts, the div diversity of spiritual gifts. And this is, of course, in verses seven to nine. And we'll pick it up at verse seven. Now, I know that I covered verse seven last week, but I need to cover it again to squeeze a little more out of it, but primarily for context. So let's read verse 7 once again. He says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Like I said, we covered this last week, but I think we need to give it a little more attention. Uh, what Paul is really doing is he's um, elaborating the nature of spiritual gifts, you know, where they come from, what they are. Uh, the passive verb, didomi, and we see it in English as given, it stresses that these gifts and these manifestations that he's talking about are actual gifts. They're gifts that are given to us. They're given by God himself. In other words, they are not the product of human will, human creation. They, they don't have anything to do with us. We're just merely recipients of these gifts, just as it is with salvation. There's not something that we play a role in. We play the role of a sinner and that's it. But salvation is of the Lord alone. The gifts are of the Lord alone. Salvation is given as a gift and we freely receive it because we've been made new. The gifts are given along with the salvation from the Spirit. So they are indeed gifts. They are given by God. Never forget this. They are not of human cunning, human ingenuity. Um, Today we see, hey, I can help you by praying with you and, and help you receive the gift of tongues. That is not the way that the biblical gift of tongues, which is languages, work. I cannot impart that to Keith through some kind of prayer or elaborate scheme. It's not something that I give. It's not something that I conjure or come up with. He's saying they are manifestations. They are gifts. And this obviously, and he says it himself here, he says every. So it's every believer without exception that has at least one spiritual gift. He says they are given to each. So every believer has at least one spiritual gift. 
Every meaning that every member of the body of Christ has something to contribute. And that the work of every member of the body who has been empowered by the Spirit and gifted by the Spirit, it means that every member, the gift that they have, it's valuable. It has a real purpose. It's not less than this person's gift or more than this person's gift. And this was a great struggle in this church. Obviously, those with teaching gifts, some in the congregation thought that's a way higher gift than I wish I had that gift. Really what they're saying is I wish I had a spotlight on me. And no one who preaches the word should ever wish or want a spotlight on them. So there's a humility that comes with it. But for whatever reason, when somebody stands in a pulpit, there's people sometimes that envy that. They want to do that. A great many young men used to come to me when I was a youth pastor at Big Valley. And they say, I'm aspiring to become a youth pastor. And I said, why? And they would say, because I want to do what you do on Sundays. And I said, that's one thing that a minister does. Meanwhile, he's pretty much a fireman and spends the whole week putting out fires in the church. So there's a lot of things that you do. But you see, they see somebody communicating and they think that that brings them some level of fame or something. And that's what they want. That is a wrong motive. But we should not be envious of each other's gifts. We should be thankful to God for each other's gifts. And if we see some brother that has a really unique and potent way of utilizing his spiritual gift of teaching, and we're, we're gifted with teaching, but it's different than his. We shouldn't say, I want to be able to preach like that. That's the kind of envy and things that we're playing out in Corinth. Every member of the body has something to contribute, and the work of each one is valuable, is what Paul is saying. Again, Paul describes these gifts that are given to all believers as the manifestation of the Spirit. The expression could be understood in uh, probably a number of ways, at least two here. First, the spirit may be what is being manifested through the gift. In other words, the gifts show the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this would certainly be true of the temporary sign gifts of tongues and maybe miracles and others like that, that when somebody displayed it, they were showing to those who were doubtful that they actually had the Holy Spirit. Like take, for instance, Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile. Most Jews didn't think that Gentiles could even be Christians or be saved. And Cornelius starts speaking in tongues. Peter says, this guy's saved like us. He has the same spirit. The Judaizers who were with him had no choice but to acknowledge the presence of the spirit and that salvation had come to somebody other than just Jews. So in these sign gifts, it was to manifest the presence of the spirit. So it could mean that. I think it's that. Maybe it's a hybrid of this too. Secondly, the point may be that the Spirit produces the manifestation so that the manifestation comes from the Spirit. Why? So that man cannot boast about his gifts. They come from the Spirit. I can't boast about my teaching ability. You can't boast about uh, your ability to counsel or something like that, whatever the gift might be. You, maybe you're super generous, you know, or you, you have the gift of hospitality. You certainly can't boast about your ability to do that. They come from the Spirit. So it, it could be a hybrid of both of those things, that it's manifested to prove that the Spirit is there, um, and then it's manifested by the Spirit to prove that it's not natural to us, that it comes from the outside supernaturally. In any case, the gifts... Are, and I think this is Paul's biggest point because this is where the confusion was for the Corinthians. The gifts are not the manifestation of self. It doesn't say it, right? It's the manifestation of each believer. No, it says they are the manifestation of the Spirit. They come from the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, of the Godhead. They come supernaturally. They are not produced by human beings, nor do they, highly important fact, nor do they show off human beings. They're not there so that I can show off or that you can show off. If they don't come from us, how could we possibly boast and show off something that was given as a gift that has been imparted and brought in through the indwelling Holy Spirit? And I think today you see a great deal of boasting coming from certain types of churches where they claim to have very powerful manifestations of the Spirit. Oh, yeah, I speak in tongues and I do this. And they're boasting about these things. And if some of these things that they're saying are true were actually true, they're not something that we could ever boast about. 
because they're coming from God to us, just as we cannot boast about salvation. Who would ever say in their right mind a Christian, I got myself saved. I saved myself. I walked up and received the gift of salvation. Therefore, it was up to me. That's ridiculous. None of us would ever think along those lines. If you're a biblical, you don't even have to be a Calvinist. You just have to be a biblicist, and none of us would make that boast that we somehow were involved in our salvation. I boast about it all the time. Yeah, I went around playing the dumb sinner. That's my contribution. I just sinned like crazy, and God rescued me. That's the only thing I ever boast about, or I boast about Christ who saved me, but I don't boast about me being part of it other than my ridiculousness. It's not something that is given to us to show off, to bring glory to ourselves. And this is important because back in the first century, some of those temporary sign gifts, like being able to work miracles and things, were present among some people. And it would be easy for someone who was blessed with that gift to start to show it off. Simon the magician wanted that. He wanted to be able to show off. You know, he was a magician by trade, and then he wanted to become a Christian magician. And the way to do that was to be anointed by Peter and receive the Spirit in a different way or what have you. Wrong motive. He wanted it to bring glory to himself. These are not manifestations of the self. They're not produced by us, and they're not given to us so that we can show off Lastly, Paul describes, again, we covered this last week, the purpose. We talked about it on Sunday. These manifestations, and you could just say spiritual gifts, the terms are synonymous. They are for the common good. They're not for self-good. They're not so that I can bolster myself and my ego, or you can do that for yourself. They are for the common good. And the Greek word for good is symphero. And it means to bring together. So when Paul says common good here, he means, and it could, it could mean a whole range of things. There's a whole lot of things that would be good according to God. But here there's a specific meaning with Simpharo, and it means to bring together. So the common good here is unity. What was lacking in the Corinthian church? Unity. They had no unity. They had... They had you know, little uh, groups. I follow this guy. I follow that guy. They were dividing over everything imaginable. I like paper. I like plastic. You know, I just, you name it, and they were dividing over it. And so Paul is saying that you people have gifts. It's obvious that you have spiritual gifts. You have been blessed with spiritual gifts. You're believers. I know about the gifts. And somehow when you exercise these gifts, they're not bringing you together as a church. They're dividing you and moving you further and further away from one another. And that is the exact opposite of the gift intent. It is supposed, you're supposed to build each other up until you all reach maturity together. Common good, bringing together. Unity really is the, the overarching or overarching goal of the gifts. Like if you were to figure out, I mean, firstly, primarily to bring glory to God always in everything that we do. Secondarily to that, it is for the purpose of unity. That is really one of the main overarching purposes of the gifts. They are to unite. They are to bring us together. They are meant to Build us up until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Ephesians 4.13, Paul had to say this to the Ephesians. Another very, very gifted church, not quite understanding the purpose of their gifts. J. Mack writes, a, and I think this might be in your bulletin. I, I can't remember what I put in there, but a church that faithfully uses its gifts in the Spirit's power experiences the joy of great unity, love, and fellowship in ways that no amount of human ability, planning, or effort can produce. That is gold, ladies and gentlemen. Mark that down. Remember that quote. You will know that when you're utilizing your gifts in humility, in the Spirit's power, it is going to produce unity, love, and these sorts of things. When they're done in, in some way that is opposite to that, they are not going to bring about the intended result. You will not have unity. You will not have the building up. You will not have this cohesive love that brings us and draws us and sticks us together. It's not going to be there when these things are used and abused. In verses 8 to 10, Paul, this is where Paul lists the nine manifestations of the Spirit or the nine spiritual gifts. 
And um, of the three spiritual gift lists that we actually find in the New Testament, this is, as I said, the longest list. The other two are in Romans 12, verses 6 to 8. And then there is another list in the same chapter down in verse 28. It's a short list, but it's there. Now, you can find another list in Ephesians 4.11, but that particular list describes various offices in the church rather than spiritual gifts, apostle, preacher, you know, teacher, these sorts of things. So it is a list, but it's spiritual leadership in the church, not spiritual gifts. But it is also worth our time at looking at as well as the Corinthians or the Romans passage. Now, I want to take a look at the very first spiritual gift or manifestation that Paul lists here. A, B, C, D is what I've got. A, here's the first one that he lists, wisdom. We see it in verse 8a. He says it like this, for to one, remember each one has a gift, for to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom. The utterance of wisdom. Now, traditionally speaking, we think of wisdom that it's usually gained through experiences and these sorts of things, right? You know, when you think of wisdom and, and how it's normally gained through experiences, you think of the wise older sage, you know, that, that has all this wisdom because he's, all, he's got all these accumulated or she has all these accumulated experiences. And, you know, you go to them because they've lived through life and been through all these things. And they're just a wise sage because they, they can just give you, I'll tell you, here's the deal with this situation. I've been through these things. They've learned and learned and learned. That's typically the way that we think of wisdom. And the Bible even says at times that wisdom is among the older. And I would never challenge that verse. That tends to be true because people have lived longer. But if wisdom is just, I mean, it's just a blank check and the, the older always have it. You know, if you're older, that means you're wise. Then why are casinos filled with blue-haired ladies? Because <laughs> gambling with your money is not wise. So and, uh, silver-haired men, okay, I know the women are like, blue-haired, that, that, come on now. Well, you guys bought us these shirts. I'm going after you this morning. <laughs> Right? The casino kind of proves that there's a lack of wisdom among older people. All right, just think of it like that. Because I've been to a casino a few times. BC, I'm not saying if you go as a Christian, oh, you're going to hell. I'm just, I've been a couple of times. I put a dollar in, I lose. And I'm like, this is the stupidest game ever. But I look around and there's people like, ah, you know. And it just, it's, it's not wise to gamble. There's a great many things that aren't wise. So you cannot say as a default that somebody older is going to be wise. That's not true. But that's the way, those are the thoughts that are conjured in us when we think of, of wisdom. And um, I, I would say, though, as a rule of thumb, sometimes older people tend to be wiser than young people because they have lived longer, been through more life situations. Um, this can be true in a sense, but it is not at all what Paul is talking about in the text. In the New Testament, wisdom, or the Greek word sophia, is used most often to refer to the ability to understand God's will and apply it obediently. Uh, say, for instance, Matthew eleven nineteen, Matthew thirteen fifty four, Mark six two, Luke seven thirty five, Acts six ten, James one five, chapter three verse thirteen, and chapter three verse seventeen, Second Peter three fifteen, and on and on and on. So, the Bible defines wisdom differently than the world, the way that the world defines it. Okay, and it usually has to do with understanding God's will, obeying it being obedient to his will, that would be probably the truest sense of what wisdom is or the truest definition. Wisdom, therefore, refers to applying truths we discover in God's word, as well as the ability to make skillful and practical application of the truth to life situations. So that's really what Biblical wisdom is, and it's quite obvious that it's different from gambling in a casino. When you're, you know, you're older and you're just wise. No, I've met a great many older fools. We all have. Now, notice, though, what Paul is actually talking about here. He is talking about wisdom, but he's talking about the what of wisdom, the utterance, the ability to speak wisdom to others. That is also a facet of this manifestation or spiritual gift. It, it, and, and this really does show that it's, it's not just, 
gain through experiences. I mean, there are some people who do gain wisdom through experiences, but they struggle terribly to communicate it to others. And that, see, so Paul is talking about not just biblical wisdom or even divine supernatural wisdom, but a divine supernatural ability to communicate it to others. So this gift comes with both. You got the wisdom and you got the ability to share it clearly so the receiver can actually receive it and understand what's going on. And this is a spiritual gift. It is a manifestation of the spirit. It is a gift that is received. It is not indicative of us. It's not natural to us. It is something that is given. It doesn't come automatically with salvation, although I would say there is some level of wisdom that does come with the gift of salvation. But this gift is above and beyond the salvific wisdom that we get, because I think every believer has enough wisdom to be able to comprehend and apply God's word, right? Why would God save us and not equip us to be able to do it? So every believer has a measure of divine wisdom. But what Paul is talking about transcends and goes kind of beyond that. You ever noticed how some Christians have some wisdom? I mean, every Christian does in a sense, but there are some that just, whoa, man, when I talk to that guy, you know, I, I really sense that this guy is gifted with this, with this wisdom, with this divine gift of wisdom. And, and not just that, but the ability to speak it and, and, and to share it and to communicate it with me. There are some that just kind of stand out and it could be that they are the ones that have the manifestation. It is the divine impartation of the supernatural ability to know, apply, and impart biblical wisdom to others. That is the gift by definition. Now, I think that Paul had a particular group of individuals that were blessed with this gift. I think he had a particular group in mind. He's not excluding anyone else. He's just, you know, he's just saying, I think he's pointing to a particular group that obviously has to have this gift to be able to do the task. And um, as I said, all Christians are given some level of wisdom, but I think he's talking about something that, that kind of goes beyond that. I think he had expositors in mind here, men who teach God's word line by line, such as himself and Apollos and Cephas, etc. First Corinthians 1 12. He's talking about men who have been called and equipped and gifted to minister and preach the word of God. I think that's his main focus here. The spiritual gift, this spiritual gift enables the expositor, the preacher teacher of God's word to draw wisdom, not only from the word of God, but also from sound commentators, Bible scholars, and et cetera, et cetera. Like the person who's gifted with this, this guy, he can read the word of God, he can study the word of God, and he can draw out wisdom from it and impart it to others, but he can also learn from the good biblical sages, people who have gone before him and have written great commentaries and systematic theologies. He has the ability to pluck from those writings as well wisdom that affirms and confirms scripture, and he can impart that as well. Sometimes the, the man that is gifted with this is a quoter. He sees something that Spurgeon or somebody else who had this gift, he sees something that they wrote long ago, and he will quote that, trying to impart that wisdom that that guy was blessed with to others. And so it doesn't mean that everyone who quotes somebody has the gift, but they typically will be someone who can discern and find it in other things. And these other things are never above Scripture. They just affirm and support Scripture. So... The gift is broad. He can do this as well. He can find it from scholars and others. The wisdom he attains is first applied to himself because that is also part of the gift. It's not like once the, Spirit, once the Holy Spirit gives the gift to somebody and they begin to exercise it and, and they start to find wisdom and all that, it's not like they run down the street or wait to get to the pulpit to apply it to others. Firstly, they always take in the gift Programmed into the DNA of the gift, the first application goes to the wise minister, the one who says, oh, oh, okay, 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 this is something that I need to apply to myself. It's not something I just need to run down, because if, if you are a teacher of the word, I have been forever, the first thing you want to do when you learn something, you gain some biblical wisdom, is go share it with everybody. You want to go to Ralston Tower? Hey, everybody, repent and believe the gospel. I just learned this. Right? It's sad if you're a minister and you just learned that, but... This is what you want to do if you're a teacher. You want to share. You want to, you want to post. You want to share. 
But the one who has this gift first applies to self. It says, how can I make use of this wisdom in my own life? Or they say, how am I not making use of this wisdom in my own life? They will think of their self in humility first and then make changes and then make adjustments and then begin to move outwardly to the congregation or to whomever God has placed before him. It has to be applied firstly to themselves. Uh, they would, in a sense, utter wisdom back to themselves. They would speak wisdom from God's word right back to themselves, right? Not in some weird way, but man, I need, I, yes, I need to apply this. I need to live this out. Uh, you know, Rachel, hold me accountable. Wait a minute. Every time we do that, I get in a lot of trouble. Never mind. I'll figure it out, but right? The utterance of wisdom is it's, it's also the ability or gift a Christian counselor must have in order to apply God's word to the questions and problems brought to him or her. So it's not just indicative or necessary for the expositor, but for the counselor. And I'm sure there's a hundred other applications for it. But anytime you have a role carved out that is about learning and extracting and drawing and applying wisdom from God's word and then applying it to others and sharing it to others, there's a good idea or indicator that maybe the gift is there because that's what that person wants to do and that's what they do. And since they have the gift of utterance, they do it well. Or at least they start out and they, be, you know, they learn and they train themselves or the spirit trains them over time how to utter this wisdom very clearly and solidly. So counseling, uh, ministers of the word, there's just a lot of different applications. Um, again, I said, I would say it again, all Christians are given some measure of supernatural wisdom. Why? Since all Christians have received a, ha a super, super high calling from their Lord. I mean, think about that. How, how, can, how can standard issue, if you want to call it that, there really aren't any issue believers, but how can just believers in general walk in a manner worthy of their calling to which they have been called apart from some measure of wisdom? Right? Ephesians 4.1, how, how can you, if you've, you've got this high calling from the Lord to bring him glory and share his gospel and apply the truth to you and to others and to do it in love and these sorts of things, how are you going to do that if you don't have some level of wisdom? You've got to have some of it. So you do have some of it. I would say a Christian without wisdom is like a fish without water. Okay, there is a distinction with what Paul is saying. It's kind of beyond that. But every, don't think that, well, if I don't have the gift of the utterance and wisdom itself, you know, no, don't think like that. You do have something, something. You have the spirit as a guide. I will say, though, that I have met a share amount of Christian flounders throughout my career as a minister. Brothers and sisters who kind of flop around through life, bouncing from one poor decision to another, you know, one of the things, that, and I don't say this with any spite or anger or anything like that, just with love and sorrow, but sometimes you meet believers and you, you really believe they're believers. Their life has shown forth fruit in these sorts of things, and it, it's evident that they have the spirit, but sometimes they just seem to lack wisdom, even baseline wisdom. Well, if this kind of person were to say to you, I have the spiritual gift of the utterance of wisdom... <laughs> You don't have the spiritual gift of wisdom. In fact, you're abusing the measure of wisdom God gave you. And it could be that the person is not in the word of God, which is the source of all divine wisdom, and not having that wisdom poured into them, strengthened, grown, broadened, matured, because they don't spend time in the word. But every Christian has been given some degree of, a pinch at least of wisdom so that they can live out that high calling. But there are some that just don't act like it. And I think sometimes we're just dealing with non-brothers and sisters who think they are. You know, they say they love Christ and there's nothing in their life that would show any wis the wisdom of that, <laughs> the wisdom of that testimony. Brothers and sisters, you just kind of flop around. The absence of wisdom is usually not the problem, right? You know, it's like, well, they don't have the wisdom. No, they've been given some of it if they're a true believer. It's the carnality. It's, it's a refusal to apply that, that measured gift of wisdom. It's a, a refusal in the flesh to embrace who they are and what they've been given and to live out even those baseline things. That's the issue. It's not the absence of wisdom. It's the absence of or the strength of their flesh that prohibits them from moving forward. 
So as believers, we all have a measure of wisdom, but we don't all have the spiritual gift of wisdom nor the utterance of wisdom. That's beyond. Paul is saying that's bigger than the normal stuff. And I think that Paul's point is that God gives it primarily to those whom he calls to minister and apply the wisdom of his word. And of course, we've got that nice list of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, overseers, elders, Ephesians 4.11. That's backed up by 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 to 7, when you think of overseers or elders, and as well as the elder text in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. Those are generally the ones that we know Let's put it this way. If you have someone who says he's called to preach and he's not wise and can't speak wisdom, he is not called to preach. He's called himself to preach. He has appointed himself or he has a church that isn't Berean and doesn't know the word and says, he seems right. Why? Because he's really nice. Well, niceness doesn't get people into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, niceness is a good thing, but that's not what saves. The gospel does. They've got to have that wisdom, that gospel wisdom. Let's move to the second spiritual gift. First one, wisdom. And secondly, B, knowledge. And these two go hand in hand, right? Wisdom and knowledge. Usually the way we think of wisdom is the application or right use of knowledge. And that really is true. We see knowledge in verse 8B. And he says, and to another. See, Paul separates them, which is interesting. He says, and to another person who's given the, uh, um, a spiritual gift. He says, to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. So the second gift mentioned logically precedes the first um, because ordinarily knowledge comes before wisdom. Um, the utterance of knowledge really is kind of a broad term which basically refers to perceiving and understanding the truths of God's word. I think the best insight on this particular gift here and this text in particular is probably found in 1 Corinthians 13 2, where Paul said, understanding all mysteries and of all knowledge, he says. So I think he's talking about the same thing. They are giving us an insight into what he means by knowledge. The spiritual gift of knowledge is really the capability of grasping the meaning of God's revelation in his word, which is really a mystery to the natural mind, right? 1 Corinthians 2.14 the, the person who doesn't have the spirit, who isn't regenerate, who isn't saved, they understand not the things of God's word because they are spiritually discerned. So if we are a true believer, we have the ability to comprehend and understand God's word. That's part of the salvation that we have received as a, as a generous, gracious gift. We embrace it wholeheartedly and it comes with just as it comes with a pinch of wisdom, it comes with a pinch of knowledge. Because how can you live out, live out a saved life without being able to know God's word? If you're called to something higher than the normal person, you have to have the knowledge of what it is and how to apply and live it out. So again, it's indicative. It's, 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 it's built into the DNA of salvation. But Paul is talking about something beyond the normal that comes with salvation or even the possession of the Holy Spirit. As I said about wisdom, all believers possess some level of biblical knowledge through the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? He guides all believers into all truth. Not some, all. John 16, 13, that is a primary task of him to convict the world of sin, these sorts of things, and to guide all of God's people into the truth. If he is going to do that, he has to grant and give some level of knowledge and wisdom. But not all believers have been given the spiritual gift of knowledge or even the utterance of knowledge. So it's really twofold according to Paul. They when they study the word, they can know the word and know what it means, and then they can share that with others. So again, I think he's referring to the expositor. I think he's referring to those who preach and teach primarily, but I, the gift is not limited to them. The counselor would have it, and a great many other brothers and sisters, maybe deacons and others, and regular, regular believer, normal believer, whatever you want to call it. I don't say normal compared to a pastor. Pastors aren't very normal, but the believer who works at the gas station you know, that works at AMPM could have this gift because they, they know the word and when they study the word, they can comprehend and grasp it maybe at a deeper level than 
another Christian and then they can impart that knowledge that they're learning. That's what it looks like. Um, God grants some saints a special ability to study his word and discover the full meaning of the text and context of even individual words and phrases and of related passages and truths. Uh, and thereby, these people who are gifted in this way, they can provide understanding for others. So again, doesn't that sound more like a Bible teacher, preacher, something like that? Someone, you know, like before I actually entered into pastoral ministry, I used to study the word like a savage. I always have, but I would, I would study it and I, I would find really cool things and neat things and I would write them down and wow, this means this. Then I would go to a commentary to confirm it. I wouldn't say, hey, I came up with something new. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. But when I went into pastoral ministry, I began to study the word even deeper and began to find even more things like that. And, um, and then had this great and grand desire to share them with others. And so as a, you know, when I was not in pastoral ministry, I studied the word a lot. Um, but I, I wasn't always able to uncover, you know, the vast riches of a text. Um, you know how it is, right? Like when you, you know, maybe you're a daily Bible reader. I sure hope you are. And you read the Bible and you read a passage and you love it and you think it's amazing. And then you hear it preached on you like, I had no idea it meant that. Okay. That, that might be the difference between having this manifestation of the spirit and not. God gives you understanding in his grace and he broadens your understanding through someone who has this particular gift. See how it works? Studying the word for ourselves is phenomenal, but when sometimes when we hear an expositor unpack it, we are blown away. That expositor probably has those gifts, that gift, and, and, the, and they can help you understand the depth of a text. See things that you didn't see in your cursory reading or in your Joyce Meyer Bible study. Hopefully it wasn't your Joyce Meyer Bible, you know, but you know, I just found out she wants me to be rich. This was the best study ever. That's because it was meant to cater to your flesh. So the person who has this gift can uncover, unravel things in Scripture that regular Christians don't, or Christians that are gifted in different ways, I should say, don't normally do. Think of it like that. Obviously, this gift is foundational for all Christian teaching and preaching, uh, as well as for the proper exercise of counseling and leadership and, and you know, just wisdom in general and all the ministry gifts. It just, it's just necessary for really just about everything, but especially for those who preach and teach. Uh, J. Mack wrote, a Christian with a gift of knowledge is supernaturally enabled not only to discover truths from Scripture, but to explain and interpret those truths in order to help others understand them. So um, I don't think that MacArthur had himself in mind when he wrote that in his commentary, but I would say, hallelujah, amen, you are talking about yourself, brother, and praise God for that, because that's who we give the glory to, not to MacArthur, and he would never take it anyways. So it's somebody who can understand it and somebody who can impart it. That is the utterance of knowledge in gift form. Let's move to the third spiritual gift Paul identifies, C, faith. This one's interesting, faith. It's like, wait a minute, how can faith be a spiritual gift? Don't all believers have it? Yes, but hold on. Verse 9a, he says, to another, remember, every believer is given a spirit, uh, manifestation of the Spirit, to another, faith by the same Spirit. That's what Paul says. So the spiritual gift of faith is distinct from the gift of saving faith, which every believer possesses. Ephesians 2.8, right? You are saved by grace through faith. Not that you could boast. It's the gift of God. So saving, and I, I really, and I wrote this, so it's like, why? I'm wearing the shirt. I've, I've got problems. Um, <laughs> I, I wasn't discerning enough to know that every man in this church would be wearing this shirt and that my wife in 30-something years of knowing her has never bought me an article of clothing. And all of a sudden for this last <laughs> Father's Day, it made sense. So... Um, <laughs> it will do it. And I just lost my train of thought. But the spiritual gift of faith is it is distinct from the gift of saving faith. And I know what I was going to say. I've never really been, even though I wrote it here and I'm wearing the shirt, I've never really been a fan of the phrase or term saving faith. Because Ephesians says you're saved not by faith, by grace, Amen. through faith. We are saved by grace. And how does that grace come to us? Through faith. 
So I think when I and others say saving faith, they're just talking about the real article. That's what they mean, the real article. So you have, if you want to call it, the faith that brings the saving grace into us, which is equally a gift to the grace, there is something beyond that faith that is a spiritual gift. That's what Paul is saying here. And Thomas Schreiner said something good here. He said, the gift of faith cannot be identical with saving faith, since all believers possess the latter, and the gift of faith is reserved only for some Christians. So he's not, obviously, Paul's not talking about saving faith. He's talking about a gift that is reserved for some Christians, but they all do have the saving faith. He says the gift of faith must refer to something beyond, to, and he uses this word, which is great, extraordinary faith. What? Extraordinary faith. And he even says, it's the kind of faith that can move mountains. This is what he says. And we know that he was citing there 1 Corinthians 13 too. So I think that's a wonderful commentary on what the spiritual gift or this manifestation of the Spirit is. It is a not saving or just general believing faith. It is a faith that kind of, it's not better than that. It's not greater than that. It's probably a derivative, derivative and drawn out of the same holistic salvation. But it's something that is, it is this power and supernatural ability, I think, to believe when believing makes no sense at all, when, when we've been impacted by situations and things are happening and circumstances, and you know how a lot of believers are like scared chihuahua, oh, I don't know what we'll do. I don't know what we'll do. But the person with the gift is over saying, I know what God will do. That's how you see it. It's that person that can just trust God no matter what is happening, no matter what is going on, and then, and then be an encouragement to those who are wavering, who are shaking, who are terrified. Because there are believers on both sides of the spectrum, some that are just like a, like a Mount Everest of faith. Nothing can shake them up. They've, they can lose all things. And, and somehow I still have Christ. You know, and then there's others that just one little thing hits them and they're like, I don't know if I'm going to go back to church. It's like, really? That doesn't sound like a believer with faith at all. But I mean, right, we see the spectrum. I mean, there are people that can really get through things in a way that just brings God glory. And there's something about their faith that we say, wow, wow, I know what they're going through. And I went through only a tiny measure of something like that. And I was a disaster but that brother, Bruce, has gotten through the cancer and, and Rick. And, you know, there's something about them that's unique and different. It could be the manifestation of this gift. It's a faith that holds. It's a faith that's strong. It's a faith that endures. Even though every believer who has real saving faith, the faith that brings uh, the grace of God into our lives, their faith will endure. God will bring to fruition the good thing he began in them. But Clearly, not everyone has this rock-solid ability to stand no matter what. They're, they're like the battle at Thermopylae, you know, with the 300. They don't care. They get, in, they get in the crevice and hold back an entire, for as long as they can, an entire brigade. They battle and battle and battle, and they just, they're just unwavering. That, that is kind of what Paul is talking about here. Um. MacArthur says, it is the capacity to trust the Lord while facing overwhelming obstacles. I think that's a great explanation. Uh, that was the end quote. The, the spiritual gift of faith, it, it enables believers to declare, and this is, this is what the Spirit led me to say, the, spirit, the, the spiritual gift, listen closely, the spiritual gift of faith enables believers to declare as they are being cast into a consuming fire, God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Who are we talking about here? Daniel's three friends. Daniel 3.17. That, my friends, this is before the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, before these gifts were given out like that. And somehow these three men who were about to be thrown into a 1,200, 3,000 degree furnace say, God can deliver us. He will. What would I have been saying? Where's the golden statue we need to bow to? <laughs> That's faith. That's a gift of faith. This 
powerful gift enables that brother or sister to say that. The spiritual gift of faith inspires a condemned brother to calmly say to his bloodthirsty persecutors, do not nail me to the stake, leave me as I am. He who gives me power to endure the fire will help me to maintain in the flames without moving. I'm backing up to the stake here. You don't need to bind me because I'm not going anywhere because the God has brought me this far. I trust him. He'll keep me from trying to run out of this fire. That is an extraordinary gift of faith. And that, my friends, was Polycarp, one of the earliest church fathers. Obviously, he had the supernatural spiritual gift of faith. Uh, let's see, another example. The spiritual gift of faith produces within the person who has this gift a hopeful optimism in the goodness of God and a humble willingness to accept all outcomes as sovereign providence. That's another way to tell if you have the gift. You're not a fatalist saying, well, just whatever, God's in control. But you just, I'm going to embrace what comes my way. And when it comes, you say, I trust the Lord and I will get through it. I know he'll get me through it. If not, he's going to do something even better. Bring me home. The possessor of this gift will say in the midst of horrific tribulation, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Who's that? Job. He had it. Before the Spirit, before Pentecost. Job 1.21. The recipient of this tremendous, the possessor of this tremendous spiritual gift doesn't budge when the waters rise, doesn't quake when the adversary attacks, and doesn't call it quits when all is seemingly lost. They stand firm on the rock who is Christ. The possessor of this gift, when the Nazis destroy everyone and everything he or she holds dearly, this gifted saint cries, Christ is all I need. Corey Ten Boom. These are all examples of God's people throughout all, all the different generations and decades and centuries who obviously were blessed with this tremendous gift to be able to just stand firm in the faith on Christ in the midst of horrific circumstances. Whether it be financial turmoil, I don't know how we're going to make ends meet. The person with this gift says, I do. God has never let us down, not once, always provided for us. Well, Jim, we got the cancer diagnosis. I don't know how we'll get through this. I do. God has gotten us through every storm to date. He's not going to fail now. That's the spiritual gift of faith. I, 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 I tell you, we've been having these marital struggles, and I just don't see how my, me and my wife of you know, 30 years, how are we going to be able to see eye to eye and work through these differences and, and all that? And I don't know, as they're telling this Christian counselor, I do. The God who joined you is the same God who can heal you and get you through this. Submit to him. All examples of the person that has this gift. It is not saving faith. That's already there. It is a faith that stands strong in the midst of terrible or difficult things. Financial losses, marital struggles, you know, losing family members, terrible diagnoses. Just you name the struggle. And you can identify this person by how they react to it. They're not fatalistic. They don't shrug it off like no big deal. They say, yeah, it does seem like an insurmountable object. But God is an awesome climber. In fact, he built the mountains. He scales them with his pinky. He can get us through this. And, and they don't just say that in that moment. That's the position they hold when that scenario goes up and down and up and down. They keep on keeping on. That's what the gift is like. Next, D, healing, verse 9b. Again, speaking of these manifestations of the Spirit to every believer, Paul says to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. 
gifts of healing by the one spirit. The gifts are of healing, and notice how gifts is plural, and so is healing. It just doesn't really show itself to be there, but in the Greek it is. But these are gifts of healing per se, but the gifts of healing are really, I think, the first temporary sign. Uh, they're, they're of the first temporary sign gifts that Paul mentions in the totality of this text. There are a few temporary sign gifts here, tongues, and now healings, I think. And that's not to say that there isn't healing, but this type of what he's talking about, I think, is past. Um, MacArthur says these gifts, the, the gifts of healing per se, were, they were for Christ, Matthew 8, 16 to 17, they were for the apostles. Matthew 10, 1, they were for the 70 that Jesus sent out, Luke 10, 1. And they were for some associates of the apostles, such as Philip. Uh, Acts 8, 5 to 7. So MacArthur says these, these, these healing gifts were given to some. And what we're seeing in his list is they were primary leaders, apostles, and so on. Um, he also says... The gifts of healing, uh, like the other temporary sign gifts, were given to the church for authenticating the apostolic message as the word of God. The Great Commission does not include a call to heal bodies, but only the call to heal souls through what? The preaching of God's word. That is a wonderful point of deduction. Nowhere in the commissionings are we commanded or commissioned to go out and heal everyone of all their ailments and all these sorts of things. We are commanded to preach the gospel in every nation to everyone, to all creation, it says in Mark. And we do this because we have been given this charge because the one who gave it to us has all authority on heaven and earth. Right? And that's Jesus, Matthew 28. So I think that's a phenomenal point that he makes there. Now I would say this, a Christian can ask God to heal any illness. Christian should ask God for that. Right? Why not? And God may choose to heal in order to accomplish his purposes and obviously to display his, glo his glory. But we must understand that God is not obligated to heal anyone at any time. He's not obligated to do it. It's not something that he must do, even if we pray fervently. Why? Because God has never promised to heal anyone. Just, you know, just blank check. I'll heal anyone anywhere. You have the gift. I'll heal anyone. He never made the promise to do that, to act in that way, or to give anyone the gift for that purpose. Never did that during the current evil age. Nowhere in Scripture where you find that. Now, you will see... Old Testament prophecies about people being fully healed and all that, but that's in the age to come where there is no illness, ailment, or whatever, or it's in heaven above, the heavenly Jerusalem. But in, in, during this current evil age, there, there's, no, there's no blank check universal promise that God would give you know, Christian, many Christians, if not all Christians, the, gift, the gifts of healing and that he would heal anyone whenever we decide to heal somebody. It's just it never had. Now, there are people, why do I say this? Because there's people that think this is true. But he's never, he's never made that promise. He's never made that guarantee. Uh, Paul had the spiritual gifts of healing. He had this spiritual gift. He healed uh, Publius and raised Eutychus from the dead. After preaching an all-night sermon, Eutychus fell asleep and fell out a window. And Paul's like, I killed him. I better raise him up. <laughs> you thought my sermons were long? Ha <laughs> ha. Some of you were thinking, yes, but Paul's sermons were much more better to listen to. Yeah. Acts 28, 8. Acts 20, verses 7 to 11. Paul has this, had this spiritual gift of healing. He could heal people. And he did that for Publius, who I think was the mayor or governor of Malta, and then for Eutychus. And in light of, uh, I would just say, in light of Paul's other tremendous accomplishments, right, being able to heal and do these other things, I really do consider him probably the greatest Christian to ever walk the face of the earth. One time I said that, and somebody said, what about Jesus? And I was like, he's not a Christian. He's Christ. You know? But would I consider Paul to be second to Christ? Of course. He's not, I can't even compare him. Christ is Christ. But Paul, if you think about the way he was gifted and the things that he did for the Lord and the way that he served and went out throughout all the Gentile regions, which were highly dangerous. And, you know, when he talks about um, all the things that he experienced, being shipwrecked and, you know, nearly stoned to death and all these sorts of things, it's just, it's, it's awe-inspiring for some brother in the Lord to have been gifted and to do the things that he did. He is hands down to me the greatest Christian to ever live.
no doubt. The second is probably Bruce. Seriously. He's to be admired for his faith, but God is to be given the glory. But speaking of Paul, this tremendous individual, tremendous Christian, but when this spirit-filled, incredibly gifted man of God asked three times for his own thorn, his own malady to be healed, God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Why is it that the man who possessed the gift of healing could not heal himself? And wouldn't that be usually, I guess, of course, with the carnal mind, wouldn't that be the first target for healing if you had the power to heal and you had a major problem? I'm dying of cancer. We're going to get rid of that. Paul had it, but asked God three times, take it away. Couldn't he have just turned the healing finger on himself? We also see no attempts from Paul at healing, uh, at self-healing, none. And no requests that he ever made to others to heal him other than the three times to God. There were others like Peter who had the gifts of healing. We never see Paul say, hey, Peter, I know you just healed the lame beggar. Could you do me a favor? Don't see it. Don't see it. No, the apostle Paul was sick. He had something. Some say it was his eyes because he got malaria and kind of went half blind. Who knows what it is? We don't know. Some say it was torment. You know, it was torment over how he, over how he tormented the church. And, and that idea sounds cute, but it's ridiculous because if anyone knew how to live in the freedom and joy of the gospel, it was Paul. So he didn't walk around with a baggage of guilt all the time over what he did. He acknowledged it a few times. But he didn't walk around going, I can't do anything for the Lord because I was a disaster. Wasn't that? Well, he had something wrong with him, and he couldn't heal himself. He never asked anyone else to heal him. It's interesting when you consider it. It could be that those who possessed this spiritual gift were not always able to perform healings. For instance, the disciples were empowered by Jesus to heal Matthew 10, 8, but they totally blew it and failed to heal a young boy. Mark 9, 17 to 29, they could not heal a guy's son, no matter how hard they tried. And when Jesus came down off the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, only that kind can be taken out by prayer. And they're like, okay, take a note. Next time we experience some kind of demon possession or illness like this, we're going to pray for the guy. They couldn't do it. They, they had the gift and they could not exercise it. Paul had two close companions that he was, I would say, seemingly unable to heal. He laments that Epaphroditus, one of his closest, most trustworthy confidants, he, uh, confidants, he acknowledges that Epaphroditus was at death's door, Philippians 2.27. Why is it that Paul has the gifts of healing and yet his BFF is almost dying? Think he ever attempted to heal him? Maybe. Maybe not. How about Trophimus, another close confidant of Paul? Paul was with Trophimus in Miletus, but had to leave him ill and very, very sick in Miletus. Paul said, I have, Trophimus is sick. I got to move on. I got to keep going. 2 Timothy 4.20. Okay. These accounts tell us that this, that the, uh, the healing gifts did not come with a blank check so that the possessor could wield these gifts whenever they wanted. As if they could just walk into a leper colony, you know, hey, I think I'm going to go visit the leper colony on Tuesday and, and just heal everybody. Nobody thought this way. There was always a a time and a place. There was always a context and a primary purpose for every healing. Jesus didn't come to heal everyone. He healed a whole bunch of people at Capernaum and then left in the middle of the night to go find some solitude and pray. And when the disciples finally caught up to him, he said, there's a whole new crop of people waiting to get healed by you. Let's go back to Capernaum and do it. And he says, I have not come to heal everyone. I have come to preach the gospel. 
You can't just walk into any place. You have this spiritual gift. You can't just heal anybody every time you want. There's a time, place, and purpose for every healing in the Bible. They were were never done just out of spontaneity. God had a purpose for giving the gift and wanted to exercise the gift in time and space for a particular reason, which removes this idea of just anyone having this gift and just you doing whatever they want with it. We got healing rooms now. That's not the way it works. Never worked like that. And usually when people talk about the healing rooms they have at their churches, they also follow that with donations are welcomed because that's what they're actually after. The potency and effectiveness of this particular, these gifts was not always dependent on the recipient's strong faith either. And that's one that they use today when, you know, somebody claims to have the gifts of healing and they try to heal somebody and it doesn't work out and they blame the one that they're trying to heal and they say, you didn't have enough faith. But man, if you just, could you just shut up and read the Bible? Could you read the New Testament? Faith to be healed was not always contingent or dependent upon faith. The same guy that the disciples could not heal his son, Jesus goes to him when he comes down off transfiguration and he discusses this with the guy. And the guy says, before Jesus says, I'm going to heal him, could you help me with my unbelief? Guy wasn't even a believer. Healed his son. It's not contingent on faith. Never was. thinking of the legion of demons and the guy that was just out of his mind and possessed by a multitude of demons. I think he was a Gadarene. Oh, yeah, you know, he was running around, buck naked, breaking chains, threatening everyone. He had really strong faith in Jesus. He didn't even know what he was. Healed instantly. Now, if you've been taught that you have to have faith to be healed, you've been taught improperly. There are examples of it where Jesus says your faith has healed you. I think we need to revisit those texts and try to figure out what Jesus actually means. But it doesn't mean that the only way, I've heard this said, have you ever heard this said? Jesus went into certain areas, but because, you know, that group of Syrians or whatever, they just, there was no faith. So, you know, he couldn't help anybody. There is a verse that mentions something like that. But some people will say that the absence of healings is because of the absence of faith. And that is not always true. Jesus healed multitudes of people that didn't even have the ability to believe in him. They were mentally out of their minds. And of course he healed people that had faith. So you can't blame this issue on those who don't have enough faith. That is a scapegoat. That is probably one of the most cruelest things I've ever heard or seen done to anyone, that you claim to be a healer, somebody desperate who loves Jesus, desperate, doesn't really understand what Scripture says, comes to that person to be healed, like Justin Peters years ago, comes to that person to be healed, and then it doesn't work out, and then they're blamed. You know what? You're not only a cripple, but you're useless because you don't have enough faith. (sighs) I guess I'll just stop talking about that because that makes me really angry that anyone who has struggled for so long with an ailment is told that. That is demonic. And it's not always contingent on faith. I think that the reason why Lazarus, who was dead for three days, four days in a tomb, King James says he stinketh. I'm pretty sure the reason why he was raised to life is because he was sitting in there with all kinds of faith. (laughs) Dead! (laughs) Dead! They're going to roll the stone away. Somebody says, it reeks. Don't do that. Move aside. Come on, man. He stinketh. John 11, 39 to 44, he's raised. It wasn't strong faith that enabled divine healings in the first century. It was God. (laughs) He either granted or withheld healings according to the counsel of his will. He always operates according to the counsel of his will, not according to what we can or cannot do. Ephesians 1.11. This is how he operates. It's how he's always operated, never not operated outside of the counsel of his own wise wisdom and will. 
God may still heal directly and miraculously today in response to the faithful prayers of his children. But no Christian today has the gifts of healing. This is apparent because no one today can heal as Jesus and the apostles did, who with a touch or word instantaneously and totally healed those who came to them. One of the things that cracks me up years ago, Dave had said something about, you know, about a church over there on that side of town, kind of close to where I live, and they've got these healing, room, healing rooms and all this stuff, and, and uh, they're always talking about healing and how people are always getting healed at their church and everything, and not trying to mock them, but maybe a little bit, but... <laughs> Dave says there is probably 1,500 opportunities right across the street at Memorial Hospital. Why don't you go over there and unleash the spiritual gift on everyone there? Because they know they can't. That's not a controlled environment for them. It's hard to stage that kind of stuff over there. But you can stage it. You can stage it inside your own little context where you can have people that have worked through these things and figure out how to show forth that they've been healed and all this. That was funny, Dave. And that's why you're on the board, because you have that sarcastic humor. Wrapping up, I do want you to notice as we close a, a very, very important detail in our text. Every gift that we've looked at thus far is either proceeded or preceded by the Spirit. Notice that? That's a detail we don't want to miss. Verse 8a, through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom. Verse 8b, knowledge according to the same Spirit. Verse 9a, faith by the same Spirit. Verse 9b, healing by the one Spirit. That is the common denominator. All the gifts were manifestations of the Spirit, the Spirit giving the gifts. He is the origin. He is the source. That's where they come from. Trust me when I say this, when Paul writes this out, there is no coincidence here. There's no such thing as a coincidence in God's kingdom. Paul intentionally inserts the manifester of these manifestations in each line because the Corinthians were misunderstanding and misusing their spiritual gifts. Some of them were still entangled in pagan religion, thinking that frenzied, hypnotic, unintelligible chanting was the spiritual gift of tongues, while mumbling, gibberish, and murmuring, occasional blasphemies. We read about that last week. They claimed to be speaking in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Paul places the Holy Spirit in the bookends of the text in verse 4 and in verse 11, and then everywhere in between because he wants his readers to know where the spiritual gifts come from. The Holy Spirit. They do not come from pantheons or pagan temples where a first century Corinthian could hear plenty of frenzied, hypnotic, unintelligible chanting gibberish and blasphemies. The gifts come, as Paul says, over and over and over, nauseatingly over and over and over. They come from the Spirit. And since they come from the Spirit, they will look nothing like the mystery religions. We talked about that last week that dominated Greco-Roman society, the gibberish and all the other things that were part of that. They're not going to look anything like even the stuff that we see in here today. And since the gifts are sovereignly assigned, there is no basis for pride or arrogance as if the gifts represent one's own spirituality and excellence. We cannot think that way because they've come to us through the Spirit. 